Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast on mental health for folks of color. I'm your host, John Zell Anderson, licensed professional counselor. I'm the owner of Panoramic Counseling, where I specialize in treating teens and young adults in Richmond, Virginia, and throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia through online counseling. Let's get into the show. This episode is part of a summer book club that I'm hosting on this podcast. In efforts to read and write more on topics related to race and injustice, I decided to log out of my Instagram account for the summer, and I'm instead focusing my time and energy here. Thanks for joining me on this journey. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me for this last part of the series on Clint Smith's How the Word is Passed. I have definitely gotten a lot from this book, and I highly recommend. But to jump in, Galveston Island, and the subtitle for the chapter is Our Independence Day. So when the author says Our Independence Day, he is referring to Juneteenth, which is a holiday that just passed at the time of this recording. So I'm going to jump in with how he opens up that chapter. The long-held myth goes that June 19, 1865, Union General Gordon Granger stood on the balcony of Ashton Villa in Galveston, Texas, and read the order that announced the end of slavery. Though no contemporaneous evidence exists to specifically support the claim, the story of General Granger reading from the balcony embedded itself into local folklore. On this day each year, as part of Galveston's Juneteenth program, a reenactor from the Sons of the Union Veterans reads the proclamation at Ashton Villa while an audience looks on. It is an annual moment that has taken a myth and turned it into a tradition. Being in this place, standing on the same small island where the freedom of a quarter million people was proclaimed, I felt history pulse through my body. General Granger and his forces arrived in Galveston more than two years after Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation and more than two months after Robert E. Lee's famous surrender. A document that was widely misunderstood, Lincoln's proclamation was a military strategy with multiple aims. It prevented European countries from supporting the Confederacy by framing the war in moral terms and making it explicitly about slavery, something Lincoln had previously backed away from. As a result, France and Britain, which had contemplated supporting the Confederacy, ultimately refused to do so because of both countries' anti-slavery positions. The proclamation allowed the Union Army to recruit black soldiers, nearly 200,000 would fight for the Union Army by war's end, and it threatened to disrupt the South's social order, which depended on the work and caste position of enslaved people. The Emancipation Proclamation was not the sweeping, all-encompassing document that it is often remembered as. It is applied only to 11 Confederate states and did not include the border states that had remained loyal to the U.S., where it was still legal to own enslaved people. Despite the order of the proclamation, Texas was one of the Confederate states that ignored what it demanded, 
And even though many enslaved people escaped behind Union lines and enlisted in the Federal Army themselves, enslavers throughout the Confederacy continued to hold black people in bondage throughout the rest of the war. General Lee surrendered on April 9, 1865 in Appomattox County, Virginia, effectively signaling that the Confederacy had lost the war, but many enslavers in Texas did not share this news with their human property. It was on June 19, 1865, soon after arriving in Galveston, that Granger issued the announcement known as General Order No. 3 that all slaves were free and word began to spread throughout Texas from plantation to plantation, farmstead to farmstead, person to person. End quote. I believe I shared about this previously. I'm not sure if it was through this book or one previously that I talked about this summer, but through all of this reading that I've been doing, I'm becoming more and more, I guess, bewildered by how we're taught in school that Abraham Lincoln was like this person who was very against slavery and that the whole reason for the Civil War was because of that. And upon reading some of his own writings and speeches, I've seen for myself racist rhetoric. And it's very surreal to me as someone of 29 years old to just now be coming to awareness of the truth of the history and how skewed it is. But later on in this chapter, I will share a little bit more about the miseducation related to slavery. So continuing on, I want to share an aside as we come up with possibilities of why the history is augmented, skewed, or completely erased from the textbooks. So here's a quote. People sometimes believe that if they talk to black youth about the historical legacy of slavery and the intergenerational iterations of systemic racism that followed, young people will feel overwhelmed and shut down. But there is enormous value in providing young people with the language, the history, and the framework to identify why their society looks the way it does, understanding that all of this was done not by accident, but by design. That did not strip me of agency. It gave agency back to me. End quote. And so, in similar fashion of the other places that the author visits in constructing this book, he is on a tour of the site that the Juneteenth announcement took place. So he's kind of walking through the streets of Galveston and kind of going to the different historical sites and things like that. So the next series of quotes that I'm going to share with you is based on the conversation that he's having with the tour guide named Stephen. So I'm going to jump into that now. Quote, I asked Stephen why he thought more white people didn't participate in Juneteenth events. They think it's just a black thing, he said. And my argument is that it's not a black thing. It's an American thing. This is the final bit of freedom for us all. In many ways, the public spectacle of Juneteenth came to serve as an open rebuke to the emerging lost cause narrative of the late 1800s. 
How could anyone suggest the war was not about slavery when black people across the state and across the country were providing annual public reminders of the war's inextricable link to the emancipation? As the lost cause mythology continued into the early 20th century, Juneteenth was not only a celebration, but also a seizing of public memory. As historian Elizabeth Hayes Turner notes, Memories represent power to people who are oppressed, for while they cannot control much of what occurs in their lives, they can own their own memories. Unfortunately, Black American second-class citizenship was recodified through Jim Crow laws and enforced through the omnipresent threat of violence, and Juneteenth celebrations were not only unwelcome, but often dangerous. With the threat of lynching always there for black Southerners, some celebrations across the country disappeared from public view and into private homes in black churches. And as the decades went by and black Americans still had nothing close to full equality to some, Juneteenth seemed like an unfulfilled promise. In 1941, the Houston Informer, a black newspaper, wrote, Negroes are not sure whether to be gay on Juneteenth or to observe the day with sadness. They do not know whether they are actually free here. By the early 1970s, Juneteenth celebrations slowly began to reemerge as local cultural organizations throughout Texas and throughout the country began to lift up the holiday as a way to celebrate Black culture and Black history. In 1979, newly elected Texas State Legislator Al Edwards Sr. introduced House Bill 1016, which would make June 19th a state holiday. Over the course of four months, Edwards built a diverse coalition of support across the state legislature. As one Juneteenth celebrant put it, even if the American people in the United States don't really set that day aside for us, I believe they owe it to us anyway. They ought to give the colored man a day for his freedom. It should be a red spot on the calendar and really took a side for. Edwards' campaign proved successful, and in 1979, Texas became the first state to create a holiday in honor of black emancipation. End quote. So before I continue sharing some of the insights that I gained from this chapter, I guess I want to reflect on the emotional response that I seem to have when I read of Jim Crow and how it really hindered the actualization of freedom. For years and years following emancipation, Black people in the South feared lynching, which for the most part went unpunished, similar to what we're seeing today where Black people dying at the hands of law enforcement pretty much is acquitted in a court of law. But how that fear would prevent people from accessing their history, but also celebrating freedom from hundreds of years of oppression. When I read it, it really makes me angry. As I read the different accounts and the histories and how things get snagged up by white supremacy wanting to keep the status quo. But moving on... The author talks about how his understanding of Juneteenth developed as he was visiting the site. So, quote, I had known that Juneteenth was predicated on the fact that some enslaved people, both in Texas and elsewhere, had gone on working without knowing they were free. 
Still, it was something different to understand how their enslavers purposefully continued to keep them in bondage. The jubilation of June 19, 1865 was for many short-lived. General Granger's proclamation did not bring about the immediate liberation of enslaved people in Galveston or in Texas, as historian W. Caleb McDaniel has said about the days, weeks, and years following Juneteenth, slavery did not end cleanly or on a single day. It ended through a violent, uneven process. As word spread about the general order and formerly enslaved people attempted to step into freedom, there were many whites who began pulling them right back. The former Confederate mayor of Galveston even rounded up black runaways in order to return them to their owners despite the labels owner and runaway having no legal merit. One couldn't be a runaway if they were, under law, free. Many Southerners felt differently. To further complicate the matter, the Union Army officials did not consistently enforce the rights of formerly enslaved people. And so as I continue on, I thought I would share what I noted in the margins of my book, The Audacity, because this blew my mind. Quote, Former Confederates across the South were unwilling to allow formerly enslaved black folks to transition smoothly and safely to freedom. They often turned to violence, believing they should have been, at the very least, compensated for their loss of property. So I'm going to stop the quote right there. You have heard it correctly. Former Confederates, in having emancipation enforced upon them, had a belief that they were economically disenfranchised because of the freeing of their, quote, property. I had to read it probably five different times because I'm pretty sure my eyes started twitching and I couldn't compute as a person of color, but just as somebody who has been deep diving into these things, I never have heard about, I guess I don't care either, but I've never heard the perspective of a Confederate former slave owner's take on the emancipation. The economy of the South was based on the backs of forced Black labor. It really blows my mind that, as you heard in the there were people who would round up Black people trying to escape, even though they're by law free to be emancipated and to move across union lines and stuff like that to build lives for themselves. They would be returned to these plantations that they were enslaved upon because the folks in the South didn't want to let it go. And so what you're going to hear next is about how there was very little support to back up emancipation. Quote, when freedom did eventually come, it often still felt out of reach. There was little financial support for the formerly enslaved, and they were given few resources with which to build economic and social mobility. Black Americans owned about 0.5% of the total wealth in the United States. Today, despite being 13% of the population, Black people own less than 4% of the nation's wealth. Despite the role Black Americans played in generating this country's wealth, they do not have access to the vast majority of it. End quote. 
the reality stands is that when you take an entire population of people, enslave them, disenfranchise them, strip away their humanity for hundreds of years, and then, quote, emancipate them with little financial traction, support, or anything, and we've heard of the acres and a mule myth, I guess you could say, but there was really no support for these people. So as I've shared previously, the sharecrop industry kind of came up in which black folks needed to work in order to create livelihoods for themselves. So they often were presented with the option of staying on the plantations to work. But the way it would happen is they would be on loan for the materials, the seeds, the, the lawn equipment, and things like that. And then due to illiteracy and lack of opportunity, they were often cheated on the books and things like that, which then indirectly kept them enslaved to the land because they would end up indebted to the landowner. And the cycle continued. I guess in the way that we learn in history classes in school is that, okay, the Black people were emancipated and happily ever after. The reality is it has always been an uphill battle and to this day in 2021 continue to see the impacts of the systemic racism. So moving on, I found a quote within this chapter that gave me a lot of validation because in the past year or two, I've decided that the 4th of July is not a holiday that I feel compelled to celebrate because obviously July 4th is commemorative of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. However, Black people were not free for many years after that. And someone argued that we're still not at our fully actualized freedom to this day. But let's jump into Frederick Douglass's quote from his 4th of July speech in 1852. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you, this day, rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought life and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. End quote. And so similar to the other chapters in this book, the author Clint Smith interviews people on these historical sites that he visits. And so he interviews a woman named Sue, who is an organizer of Juneteenth in the Galveston area. Quote, Sue contended that these conversations rarely happen in our own community, largely because there is a fear of whom it might offend specifically in the states of the former Confederacy. In the South, I think there's a hesitance to talk about it openly because nobody wants to offend white people, she said. Sue believed there was an unwillingness to look at the ugliness of slavery and discuss it because you talk about what whites did to us. People don't want to talk about it, end quote. The hesitancy or the avoidance of conflict is precisely why we are living in a state of chaos. 
and that we can't heal or even begin the process of healing. So continuing on, I'm going to share some of the commentary on how our public education system continues to fail our youth to this day. So, quote, They may discuss in the school system that you were a slave, but they're not going to talk about what happened after slavery, how you were emancipated, how others came and took your land, if you got anything at all. They're not going to tell you the real story of how you went and you fought in every war that this country has ever fought, including the Civil War. They're not going to tell you those things. They're not going to put that in the history books because they want to glamorize the Confederacy. The responsibility of passing on this history falls to both the community and the schools. Texas has experienced a number of high-profile embarrassments with regard to how schools in the state have taught Black history, particularly slavery. In 2015, the State Board of Education and publisher McGraw-Hill Education came under fire for providing students with a textbook that described how the transatlantic slave trade brought, quote, millions of workers from Africa to the southern United States to work on agricultural plantations, end quote. It seemed to many to be a deliberate obfuscation of the fact that Africans were forcibly and violently stripped from their homelands, not people who were just workers, who simply agreed to come and help cultivate North American land. In April 2018, eighth graders at Great Hearts Charter School in San Antonio were asked to complete a worksheet titled The Life of Slaves, A Balanced View, which had two columns in which the students were meant to write the positive elements of slavery in one and the negative elements in the other. A textbook that had been used at the school included a description of how slavery included, quote, kind and generous owners, end quote, and enslaved people who, quote, may not have been terribly unhappy, end quote. The Texas State Board of Education has since revised the standards so that across the state, slavery is understood to have played a central role in causing the Civil War. It's a subject that nobody wants to touch because nobody wants to really talk about it, Bostick said. She leaned towards me and her eyes looked on mine. But it's what's going to continue to tear our country apart until we're willing to understand it happened. It really happened. End quote. And we take a deep breath there. So let's wrap this up, shall we? Quote, I thought about how Juneteenth is a holiday that inspires so much celebration, born from circumstances imbued with so much tragedy. Enslavers in Texas and across the South attempted to keep Black people in bondage for months, and theoretically, years after their freedom had been granted. Juneteenth, then, is both a day to solemnly remember what this country has done to Black Americans and a day to celebrate all that Black Americans have overcome. It is a reminder that each day this country must consciously make a decision to move toward freedom for all of its citizens, and that this is something that must be done proactively. It will not happen on its own. The project of freedom, Juneteenth reminds us, 
is precarious, and we should regularly remind ourselves how many people who came before us never got to experience it, and how many people are still waiting. End quote. Next up in the Summer Book Club series is going to be Just As I Am by Cicely Tyson. And I had actually pre-ordered this book before it was released. And I was devastated and heartbroken when just one or two days after this book came out, Cicely Tyson passed away at age 96. So this book is relevant to the Summer Book Club series because she talks about of course, her 96 years of life. So definitely stay tuned for that. I'm actually going to be taking a couple weeks off of podcasting, and you'll start seeing those episodes of Cicely Tyson's book starting with the beginning of August. So I'm just going to take a couple of weeks off. I've recently began audiobook narration, and I'm currently working on the Audible version of the book that I reviewed in the last episode on this podcast, which was Blackness Interrupted, Black Psychology Matters by Nicole Osborne and Tamara Gittens. So if you haven't checked that one out, that episode, definitely go back and listen to it. It was a great interview with the authors of the book. And I'm super excited to be part of the book by narrating the audible version of it. So in my time away, I will be working on something just as important as these conversations that we've been having through the Summer Book Club. But anyway, I don't want to be too long on this episode, so I'm going to get off of here. But y'all take care. Anchor is everything you need to make a podcast. And best of all, it's free. They offer creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor also distributes your podcast, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, and many more. Did I mention that you can make money from your podcast no matter the size of your following? Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support this podcast by buying me a coffee. The link is in this episode's show notes. Thanks in advance.